The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, John. Thank you. And yourself? Great to be here, Father. Good to see you. Yes. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Well, we've had some developments here since we met last, right? Yes, Father. Um, I, uh, as you know, I took last week off uh, where you did a solo program by yourself uh, just a day after our uh, daughter was born, Noel Joan Marie Nagley. And uh, just um, two days after her birth, she actually passed away unexpectedly. And um, I. Uh, Really wanted to thank all of our all of our viewers, all of our fellow parishioners and um, friends and family, and everyone who's just been so incredibly uh, supportive and um, and helping us out in, in so many ways. We've even had total strangers um, either sending donations or, or, of course, praying for us and uh, sending words of encouragement. So um, definitely been a very hard time, but um, a great blessing. We were able to get her baptized. Um, <clears throat> actually, the uh, not even uh, not even twenty four hours before she passed away. So it was definitely a great consolation to know that she <coughs> went straight to heaven, and we have a perfect little saint in our family. It's a great uh, great consolation. And we um, had the funeral mass for her uh, Noel this past uh, Thursday, uh, followed by the burial. Um, so. Uh, we, uh, like I said, been a hard time, but it has been, uh, I guess, a great blessing as well, as I say, to have a great saint in the family. So, And I just really wanted to thank everyone who has been so so uh, supportive during this time. Thank you. Thank goodness for the faith, right? Yes. Thank God for the faith. Right? Totally. You know that uh, your little one is now uh, exalted among the, uh, with the angels and the saints in heaven. That's right. right. And is certainly uh, accessible to you. Right? <laughs> Now that she has the beatific vision of God, you can call upon her anytime. I do think she's already at work. In fact, I, I think to some extent she's keeping me busy, me busy and I'm keeping her busy, too. <laughs> there have been developments that are uh, sure signs of God's grace, and I, I associate it very clearly with uh, Noel. Mm -hmm. uh, she has a voice in heaven. So uh, by the time I, I must commend you and Hannah and Little ones, they've really been quite uh, very edifying in your the uh, your rock solid faith in God and all of this is uh, truly edifying, edifying for everyone, as I've been told and as I've seen myself. So I appreciate that. In fact, uh, I think your eldest uh, uh, Charlotte has also set a splendid example. Right, <laughs> truly a marvelous faith and uh, and showed some real leadership. 
right? Yes. Even, even among her siblings in this. So. And her parents. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. No doubt. She's edifying everyone. So, uh, But uh, we certainly continue praying for you because it, it is... It is a it is a hardship. I I don't have to tell you that, but the fact is, uh, we know that you know it is one of the most difficult things for a human being to deal with gracefully in this life. Mm -hmm. uh, more difficult than losing a parent it seems so unnatural to lose a child. Yeah, we know in previous centuries it was rather the almost the norm rather than the exception, right? Wasn't it? It's hard to imagine. Uh, a time like that now, but the, the faith of uh, our Catholic ancestors has been very great. And I must say that uh, you seem to have a, a, be a worthy, a worthy successor of those Catholic ancestors that you had had and, and the faith you have. So God bless you, boy. Thank you, Father. And I wanted to thank you as well for baptizing Noel uh, just the day before she passed away. You know, I am um, her few uh, few days that she spent here on earth she was only able to meet uh, just a very very small handful of people and you were um, one of the first and foremost uh, amongst those and um, I can't help but think that she is definitely recommending your soul to God for baptizing her and giving her the supernatural life that enabled her to go to heaven so I wanted to thank well, you well I uh, certainly need that and appreciate it and uh, accept it gratefully but uh, I, uh, I thank God for having been able to do so. Yes. And I actually, uh, again, think it's a very good lesson that uh, parents should not postpone the baptisms of their children, right? And the fact that you had her baptized within 48 hours of her birth, is, uh, that's, that's very good. Every parent should be looking for that. I think it was a bit providential as well, Father, because that is the earliest that we've ever had any of our children baptized, mm -hmm. and um, we had no real indication that there was um, any anything wrong and that there was any uh, great necessity to have her baptized. And um, mm -hmm. I know it's common for a lot of traditional Catholic families to wait five, six, seven days uh, mm -hmm. before the baptism, but... Um, uh, real credit to my wife and just how amazing she is and how amazing she uh, went handled everything. She um, was was ready and uh, willing and able to make it to the baptism um, mm. just um, so so soon, and so we were able to get her baptized so quickly. So I think uh, there's definitely some providence in that. Certainly, and you and Hannah will be able to uh, comfort, console, and strengthen others too yes. in the future. So yeah. Yeah. there are great graces given here. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. But yes, again, thanks to um, everyone for their incredible support during this time. I know uh, both my wife and I and my children as well, we all really appreciate it. So thank you all and God bless you. And we, we have actually uh, requested a mass to be said for all of our benefactors mm -hmm. in this situation. And uh, we do keep you in our daily prayers. So thank you very and, much. And uh, coming to the to the uh, viewing at the cemetery, at the funeral home, right? Uh, the day before the Mass of the Angels was offered for her, for Noel. Were your uh, grandparents, right? Yes, Father. And uh, they've been married. They're celebrating their their seventieth wedding anniversary. They just celebrated their seventieth wedding isn't anniversary. That, yes, that's, isn't that remarkable? Yes, Father. Absolutely. A blessing, right? Yes, I was actually quite surprised to see them there, and yeah. um, it's a real uh, real testament to their faith. And yeah. they are definitely incredible, incredible mm. people. So yeah. it was it was uh, quite amazing to see yeah. everyone, everyone well, there. So. Well, that's a comfort. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But, uh, okay, Father, um, we have all kinds of great emails yeah. in the inbox that uh, we wanted to try and work through. Um, 
Thank you for, for answering some of them. In your solo program last week, uh, we did have a response or two to uh, some of the topics that you talked about. And uh, one email uh, that I wanted to start with is from a viewer who wrote in and said that if Father Jenkins believes the Holy See, the College of Cardinals, the diocesan sees, the parishes, etc., have no true Catholic occupants, and Father does not believe in the Kasikiakum thesis, what would need to happen for those structures to once again be validly occupied? Well, uh, that is kind of assuming, I guess, that they would necessarily have to be reoccupied, right? Um, in other words, I, I don't think it is realistic to look to simply reconstruct the church as it had been. I think sometimes people are looking for that and assuming it must be so. Then all of a sudden the entire uh, structure with all of the various, well, and you see what Francis has done in, in remodeling the, the, the church, actually. I mean, not remodeling it only, but just revolutionizing it, right? He's introducing an entirely new structure, right, in the Novus Ordo. So, um, I, I, again, I, I don't think you can just uh, go back and look at the order of the, the congregations as they were, the curia offices and so on, curial offices of the church, and say, well, we're going to have to bring all that back. Right? I mean, uh, over the years, they've, they've totally re remade the, the holy office, right? <laughs> and uh, the various other um, bedrock institutions of the church that tradition created over, through all those years, and they've basically done away with these things. They've renamed them, they've reassigned them duties, uh, and uh, basically filled them with, um, <clears throat> uh, well, you know, we used to talk about the princes of the church. The cardinals used to be the princes of the church, but now we see we've got the princesses of the church. Francis is actually sad to say, but he is. He's actually promoting into positions over what these new institutions he's creating um, in place of the old traditional, uh, you know, offices of the church. And he's, he's staffing them with, uh, well, shall we say, people of deviant, de um, deviant devious, and uh, disreputable, and uh, certainly uh, suspect orientations, right? Uh, so he's proven himself a great champion of that and, and of those, uh, those people. And so to think that we're just going to sort of uh, wind up recreating the church according to its, um, you know, as it was um, before Vatican II, I, I don't think you're going to do that. I think we've got a situation here where we've got a church which is more or less being reduced to what we saw uh, during the Great Persecutions. I think that's what we're facing. That's what we're looking to see happening here worldwide. And um, so again, I, I think the, the question is kind of a false question in the sense that uh, what would have to happen to reconstitute all of these things and uh, put them back in, in Catholic hands, um, I personally think that the future holds for the church um, persecution. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there are a lot of even conservative Novus Ordos who are actually anticipating that. So um, 
I think we basically have to regard ourselves as being in a, a the church is in a state of crisis, and I don't think that we're going to be turning the clock back, as it were, and just reconstituting everything the way it was, as though we're running the film backwards, you know, we're running time backwards and going to be back in the 1950s, in the 1940s and 30s again, mm -hmm. with the way the church conducted her. Uh, nor conducted her affairs, as it were, through the various, um, uh, well, you know, I, I don't want to get too te technical here because people don't necessarily what that meant, to the various congregations, to the Roman Rota, and through the, um, uh, you know, various, uh, various curial offices. But uh, Francis has pretty much done away with those, and I don't think we can just kind of recreate them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to point out that the church can still function uh, in this state of crisis that, that we're in. We can still have real valid traditional Catholic priests who can still administer the sacraments and oh, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And so well, on. the church says in her own law that the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. That involves the priestly power to absolve, to uh, justify from sin, and to sanctify by the power of the sacraments. And our Lord Jesus Christ so, so conveyed these powers, his own powers, his priestly powers, together with his prophetic powers and his kingly or pastoral powers, he conveyed them to his apostles and through the, to, the, to, the entire, to the church. And those powers remain, absolutely. They, they, they do not fade. And our Lord set it up very, very uh, well with divine wisdom so that these powers could continue, even in spite of the fact that you had unworthy, unworthy men in positions of power, and um, or claiming that power, and the church would uh, continue and carry on. And it's, the church is immortal. Right? Our Lord Jesus Christ promised that He would be with the church even until the end of time. But people sometimes misunderstand that to think that the church is going to reign triumphant and grow from victory to victory to victory, and never, you know, suffer great loss. The church cannot be transformed from what Christ established into some, something else. That's her indefectibility. The church cannot defect. But the fact is, uh, the church really must, in a sense, relive the life of Christ here on earth. It's the mystical body of Christ. Uh, this has been, uh, you know, a constant theme of the, the, the ages that have gone by, and the, the doctors of the church, the fathers of the church, expect that the, ch the church itself is going to have to undergo the same kind of persecution that our Lord himself went through. And our Lord himself, in the gospel, he talks about that. Wonder not if the world hate you because they have hated me before you. And, and basically the message is they will hate me because of your love for me. Um, so we expect that, yes, the church will have to undergo persecution. The church will have to undergo great loss, as our Lord saw so many of his disciples walk away from him over his doctrines. The heretics have taken them away. Uh, so many leave him over persecution because they did not love him enough to en endure with him. Um, and our Lord suffered great, great loss, and finally he himself was uh, subjected to uh, terrible, uh, you know, uh, passion and, and death, and rose again from the dead. We have many indications in the church's history, in her tradition, that the church is going to undergo 
very much as an institution, but Christ himself underwent personally here on earth. And that would indicate that the church herself will be so persecuted that in the eyes of the world, the, the church, uh, the, uh, the world will be rejoicing that they had finally killed the church, finally put it in the grave, just as they rejoiced that they thought they had put Christ in the grave. But the church has the power to rise from the dead, even as Christ does. You know, and it's interesting to note, uh, I think, that, um, and that maybe it's a concept that's a little hard for people to understand. When our Lord died on the cross, he died a human death. Uh, that is to say, his human body and his human soul were separated. That's what death is for us, right? But <clears throat> the divine person of the Son of God did not leave the soul of Christ, nor did the divine person of the Son of God leave the body of Christ. The, the, the divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, remained with the body and with the soul, even when they were separated. And the body was laid in the tomb. The divine power, the Son of God, was there with it. And the divine power of the Son of God was with the human soul of Christ when it descended into hell, went to limbo to uh, preach the gospel to the dead, as St. Peter says, to inform them the redemption had happened and they were now redeemed. But, uh, and, and, you know, it was really because of that divine power that the body and, and soul of Christ were re reunited and uh, resurrected and, uh, and glorified, right? Because of that divine power that was present there. The church has that. The church has that divine power within it. And the, 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 the worst efforts of, of mankind, the worst efforts of the worst of mankind cannot deprive the church of that, no matter what they do. They are doomed to fail in their attacks on the church. Our Lord has, has so constituted the church that the, sanct that the justifying power of the priesthood and the sanctifying power of the priesthood can continue operating in the church even when you have grossly unworthy men, either holding power or claiming to hold power. They cannot stop that sanctifying power of the church any more than they could stop the sanctifying power of Jesus Christ. I mean, here, here's our Lord hanging on the cross, and he's being reviled, at first by both, by both thieves. And then one thief mysteriously, well, by grace, experiences a, a conversion, right, and begins defending our Lord against the imprecations of the other, and even makes an act of faith at that moment. You know, God gives this man who's dying on the, on the cross next to our Lord Jesus Christ, gives him the faith to make an act, gives him the grace to make an act of faith in our Lord. There, under those circumstances, and our Lord, you, you know, you see how he appears to all the human eyes present there, but this thief is given the grace to see him as the Son of God, as the Savior, and he appeals to him. Uh, Lord, remember me when thou dost come into thy kingdom, right? And you see, the sanctifying power of Christ is not diminished, even there on the cross at that point. And so, um, any more than the forgiving power of Christ was diminished, as he cried from the cross, his first word, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, um, it is not diminished in the church either, even under the circumstances prevailing today. The effort to put an end to the magisterial power of the church, her jurisdiction, her governing power, 
Ultimately, what they want to stop is the power of justification from sin and the power of sanctifying by grace. That's ultimately what the, what the enemy, that's what Satan wants to stop. And yet he's not able to do it. He does not have the power to stop that. That's Christ's own power at work. Right. Very good. Thank you, Ken. So, in any case, um, that kind of obliquely does, uh, I think, respond to what the gentleman says here. Um, but I think there is that larger question uh, for those who think, well, in order for the church uh, to get through this, we have to try to seek to restore um, everything as it was, put everything back in place. But I think at this moment we're beyond that. And now we have to uh, realize we're dealing with a church um, that is in Gaul involved in a kind of final battle. Yeah. If, uh, and, and, you know, there is talk about the triumph of Mary, the age of Mary, and with good reason, you know, with good reason, there is talk of that. Our Lady said in the end, when all of these things have transpired, all of these things have taken place, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph, she said. So uh, these are words of our Blessed Mother herself. You know. And there will be a restoration. But the restoration will be on a much higher level than anything the Church has known in the past. Okay, So e even from that point of view, it's not just a matter of trying to reconstitute everything exactly the way it had been before Vatican II. Okay, very good. Okay, um, <clears throat> Father, uh, we had another viewer who wrote in and thanked you uh, for your last program where you talked about the uh, Sanborn and Dolan issue. Uh, this viewer wondered if uh, perhaps Father Sanborn had actually watched your program because he said a, a matter of hours after your program aired, uh, Father Sanborn put out his own program uh, where he issued a clarification on his, uh, on his, his, his position. Um, I haven't actually wa watched the program, but mm -hmm. um, this year is well, interesting to know. I'd like to see it myself, yeah. actually. Uh, but he asked. I'd Father... like to think that he's a fan of the program. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, be a little bit surprised, but <laughs> um, Father, he asks if you have any comments on the opinion that <coughs> members of the modernist Novus Order Church need to perform a public abjuration and have their latte sententiae excommunication absolved as followers of other heretical religions should do? I don't think so. I don't think that's necessary to require that. Um, do I think it would be a good, helpful practice? I think it would be. I think it'd be good um, to um, uh, consider, consider that, especially if it is known that those who come over from the Novus Ordo actually held, formally held heretical positions, that it would be necessary to do so, absolutely, in that regard. Um, but we're, what we're seeing as days go by, as Sundays come and go, and as the months pass, well, even the years, we see more and more Novus Ordo people uh, fleeing the Novus Ordo. Maybe they left the Novus Ordo weeks, months, years before, coming in our doors to the traditional Mass again. Or maybe maybe they just had something happen to them the Sunday before, and they said, enough, I can't do this anymore, and they come uh, back to the traditional Mass, and they say, this is my faith, this is what I have believed all this time. 
I never was comfortable in Novocero. I knew there was only something wrong with it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Or I knew there was something wrong with it, but I thought to be Catholic, I had to go along with it because after all, the Pope is the Pope is the Pope is the Pope. As they say, it's got to, you got to stay with the Pope. And uh, even if the Pope tells you to, you know, uh, smash crucifixes and take uh, communion in the hand and, and scatter it around the church or whatever, the Pope's, whatever he says goes, you know, no matter how outrageous it may be. And even if he brings a pagan idol into the church, we all got to bow down and worship it with him. Now, you know, unfortunately, that, you know, that, that is a really exactly what uh, was being condemned long ago as papalatry, like worship of the Pope as though he was somehow a replacement for Christ himself, a successor of Christ, a new Christ here, who can give us a new faith. This was never the Catholic faith, though. <clears throat> the fact is that we find a lot of, a lot of people out there <clears throat> in the Novus Ordo who cling to the rosary for dear life, who are suffering mightily because of the Novus Ordo, they feel terribly this contradiction between their faith and what is happening in their churches and what is going on at their tables in the place of their altars. And uh, as soon as they, uh, you know, the, the, the scales fall from their eyes and they see clearly what's happening, uh, they just, they realize, I have to make a decision, I cannot... I cannot live with this contradiction anymore. And often, we, as we pray, they come back to they come to the traditional faith and find there the faith that they have. And what we do is we find that they believe the catechism. We find they believe everything in the catechism. Uh, we find that out, and we actually sit down with them. We go through the catechism, and we find that they believe everything that is in there. Right, and. Um, so what was their faith all this time? They actually believed the traditional faith. They believed the old catechisms. Um, so there was no formal heresy in them at all. I think that's true of many, many of these good people who come, come over, come to the traditional mass now. That they never formally embraced the heresy, rather they, they detested the blasphemy they detested the sacrilege. They just tolerated it as an evil because they felt they had to, and they didn't know what else to do. <clears throat> and when they finally gave up, it, and they then they walked away from the Novus Ordo. They didn't walk away from their faith. They walked away from the Novus Ordo because they had the faith, right? And they still kept that faith. So I don't think it's necessary to require an abjuration of error from all those who come. I do think it's necessary to go through the catechism, though, just to make sure that they have the background in the faith and know what the faith actually teaches, <clears throat> in case they actually have imbibed any errors of the Novus Ordo. They've got to be addressed, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that's especially true of any clergyman who want to come over right. and be traditional Catholic priests, because they've been subjected to the <clears throat> brainwashing of the Novus Ordo, quote-unquote, theology. And uh, they may well be infected with all kinds of Novus Ordo-isms <laughs> and modernisms, which we have to, uh, which have to be addressed and cleared up. Right. Okay. We do find occasionally that when, when a, a priest does come, from a, when a clergyman does come from the Novus Ordo, and is hastily put in play, as it were, put in front of the traditional Catholic people, 
he's been taught maybe how to offer a traditional Latin Mass and, um, and so on. But we've heard coming from the pulpit and various other times some very compromising statements that clearly show uh, a Novus Ordo indoctrination in a Novus Ordo clergyman. So the, let's say, if a conversion indeed was not complete. Okay. And that has scandalized traditional Catholic people very much in the course of time. So we have to be very, very sure that especially any, any clergyman who comes over is, is um, shall we say, his, his faith is purged of any, any modernistic tendencies. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Okay, next email. Hey, by the way, excuse yes. me. <clears throat> Notice the church has already provided for that in the oath against modernism. Though. Yeah. Right? So I do think if you have a clergyman come over, an abjuration of error would be very much in order. Yeah. And the requirement that he pronounce the, the uh, oath against modernism. Very good. Okay. Uh, Father, a viewer says that he did critical research uh, concerning Archbishop Took's consecrations. And he says, I am completely satisfied in regards to their validity. Many organizations, uh, these consecrations started. For example, the CMRI are doing uh, great work, bringing valid sacraments to countless souls which were disenfranchised by Novus Ordo and are witnesses to work of God's grace in them. So he says, Father, I do not understand your ongoing opposition to what is obviously the work of God in these challenging times. So, Father, isn't it time to stop all of the infighting? This person has no concept of what this is all about. No concept whatsoever. And as far as this critical research, I'd like to see what he calls critical research here. <clears throat> He's ignoring the problems, just ignoring the problems. Right? That we do not have the evidence we need to certify beyond any, any reasonable doubt that these are valid, right? There are well, I don't want to go through the whole thing again. We've been through it dozens and dozens of times before. And if he just chooses to ignore all of that, there's nothing I can do. If that's what he calls critical research, I'm sorry. It is not uh, infighting. It's not internecine uh, warfare or anything like that. It's a simple matter of fact that actually what those who are supporting the Tooks right now, at least those with whom I was formerly associated, They've simply changed their position out of necessity to find a way to justify this in their own minds. <clears throat> but uh, the position that I have now is exactly the position that they held for years. And the fact that they've sort of let the standards slip in this matter and acknowledged publicly and uh, explicitly that we have to let ourselves be involved now with very sordid things. We have to. I mean, the, the priests involved have actually said, this is much too sordid for us to have anything to do with, ever. And now they're up to their ears in this thing. Uh, the Took consecrations. And they are consecrated people. So, uh, uh, so the fact is, though, that according to the standards the Church herself has given to us for determining um, <clears throat> with the certitude necessary that these, these are valid, uh, it's not there. Simply not there. Uh, despite all of the mental and theological gymnastics their supporters 
uh, produced to try to support, try to come up. They remind me of Democrats in the way they're thinking. They remind me of the Democrats' arguments and way that they, they kind of try to whitewash everything. <clears throat> um, if that's what they want to call critical research, that's, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do for them. Um, but uh, no, no, it, it, we have to stand on this because if we're going to be traditional Catholics, we have to follow Catholic tradition. Agreed? Yes. Right? You would think, right? And the, and the Turks, and, and what they've done with Archbishop Took, and the so-called the consecrations that he's performed, they're not following Catholic tradition. They're looking for the standards that they need and the evidence they need for the validity of these consecrations. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, they're producing false arguments, and uh, these arguments are not arguments from the Catholic Church. They're arguments from their own fantasies. Okay. Thanks Sorry, but it's what okay. it is, you know. And uh, by the way, in saying this, I'm not accusing them of being a bad, uh, you know, a bad will. Um, but I think they, I think necessity is the mother of invention in this case. Yep. Uh, and as to why they changed their position, adopted the position they did, because they ran out of alternatives in their minds, and they thought this is all we've got. This is the the only way we've got open to us now to get the bishops and priests we want, we have to go with the Took line, and so we have to hold our nose and, uh, and go with it. And uh, there are those of us who would not do that. And we would not compromise on matters of not only um, style, we wouldn't compromise in matters of, of substance. But I'm afraid that they have, in fact, chosen to compromise in order to meet a, a need. Um, and I, I find it truly lamentable. Okay. All right. Truly. Father Jenkins, are there legitimately ordained, ordained priests in the Novus Ordo Church? Are any of the Novus Ordo Masses okay? Uh, even the diocesan Latin Masses. Would our Lord allow the Novus Ordo Church to exist for 50 plus years? Uh, after Vatican II, if that church was totally unpleasing to God. Would our Lord allow the Novus Ordo Church to exist for 50 plus years if that church was totally unpleasing to God? Mm. Quote, unquote. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> well, I mean, the, the Lutheran Church just celebrated its 500th anniversary, right? Right? I mean, Islam, right? You know, there's... Going on since the year, what, 632, or whatever it was, right? Uh, would God allow it to continue? I mean, well, he, he, has, he has done so, right? I don't know why, uh, I mean, the implication is, they're saying is, God would not allow this to continue for 50 plus years it was not, if it was not pleasing to him, right? <clears throat> so, um, the Novus Ordo is uh, the product of modernism. And it is like an infected cell that has the modernist virus in it that is duplicating and replicating modernist, modernism and modernism and modernism everywhere. Okay? And it is, it is a disease. Modernism a disease, it is, is a disease of the mind and the heart. Read Pashendi of St. Pius X and see, he doesn't use the word disease, but he uses words that are a lot stronger than that. Okay? But it is a disease of the mind and the heart and Vatican II, and what came out of Vatican II, is the ch modernist church. It is a church infected with modernism. 
Francis, <coughs> you might look upon Francis as the anomaly, kind of the outlier. Francis is exactly what Vatican II is all about, though. He is Vatican II right now. And so um, the fact is that, um, yes, I would say, yes, indeed, God would allow it to continue. Um, and in fact, uh, it has been prophesied by St. Paul and others since St. Paul about a great apostasy. That is to say, there would be a great falling away from the faith. Many of those who had the faith would lose the faith, right? And uh, so much so that it would be called the great apostasy even in preparation for the coming of the Antichrist. Read St. Paul, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And you see what he says there about it, a great apostasy. So I don't see this person in asking the question, although he's implying an answer. I don't think that the answer that the person is implying is correct. My answer to the question is simply, well, yes, he, God would allow that to continue. Okay. Uh, and, and has yes. <laughs> allowed it to continue. Yes. Hey, uh, Father, could you explain the differences between the Gregorian, uh, the Gregorian, and the Julian? Gregorian? Gregorian. <laughs> I just said Gregorian calendar. <laughs> that oh my goodness! Now he's rewriting the calendar. <laughs> Not <clears throat> Well, they wrote the the sanctoral cycle. <laughs> they wrote the church. Rewrote the church calendar. Let's put it that way. Well, uh, Julius Caesar actually proposed in the year forty-seven B.C. Forty-seven, you know. Year 47 before Christ. He proposed that the calendar, the old Roman calendar, had to undergo a change. Mm -hmm. Maybe because he, as a soldier, understood the importance of the seasons of the year when fighting could be carried out. Maybe he saw that there was a shift in the, uh, in the actual seasons of the year <coughs> against solar time. And we have our own calendar in which we have our days come and go, and we have the numbered days for the year, and then we... <clears throat> but the sun doesn't necessarily follow our calendar, okay? And so that doesn't mean that there's exactly 24 hours <clears throat> in a solar day, because the, sol the sun does not respect our calculations, okay? Is the solar day about 24 hours? About 24 hours, yes, as we calibrate the hours. <clears throat> is it exactly 24 hours? No. <clears throat> and so what you're going to find is that over weeks, months, years, centuries, there's a discrepancy between uh, the way we count the days, the number of hours in the days, <clears throat> and the number of actually the days in the year. And the seasons are going to start shifting. Uh, this might be a little difficult uh, concept for, uh, for people to, to gather. But Julius Caesar saw that. <clears throat> and he actually consulted with Greek mathematicians and so on. Um, so he wasn't just a, 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 a soldier. I mean, when I say just a soldier, I mean, <clears throat> he wasn't just a, a fighting man. I mean, he was a, like a... Uh, uh, he, he was really a thinker, and he was a general, and so he didn't just know how to use a spear or a sword. <clears throat> he was a great tactician. And um, 
I mean, you would want all of your soldiers to have that sharpness of intellect, too. You know, and they're defending their, their country, their families, and so on. But Julius Caesar actually excelled. He was one of those remarkable individuals. He saw the need to reform the calendar. And so about the year 47, 46 AD, uh, BC, uh, the calendar that he proposed was put into effect, and it went into effect throughout the Roman Empire. And it actually allowed for 365 days plus one quarter day in the year, so that every fourth year in the Julian calendar, you had a leap year. Uh, every fourth year, four times one-fourth of an extra, an extra one-fourth of a day each year was accounted for in a leap year <coughs> by adding a day and putting everything back where it was supposed to be, you see. <coughs> the problem was that, again, uh, the solar day is not exactly 365 and one-quarter days, not 365.25 days as we reckon them. And so, again... 1,600 years after the Julian calendar went into effect, <clears throat> people began, well, they began to notice probably before that, <clears throat> but the, the solstices were, they were kind of changing, you know, like the days were being pushed in a certain direction and lagging behind. You know? <clears throat> and um, because the, um, uh, again, it's not exactly 365.25 days in a year, over centuries, this is going to show. And so that's when Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, in the year 1582 introduced a new calendar, which is an, with a minor adjustment. Made. And that minor adjustment he made actually called for, first of all, bringing the seasons of the year back in line by eliminating basically about, what was it, 11 or 12 days, something like that, from the calendar, because the whole calendar had shifted that much. And so they went from October, I don't know, what was it, um, 3rd or 4th, to October 15th or something like that. It was, they jumped ahead 10, 12, 13 days. They jumped ahead during that time to bring the whole calendar back to coincide so that January 1st would be, you know, mark the exact, you know, would mark, would bring in line with the solar activity, anyway. Um, and um, the seasons of the year then, which had shifted later, very important for farmers, very important for military officers, as I know, pursuing uh, good fighting weather. Uh, and so uh, um, certain phenomena, in nature, too, um, that would take place, like clockwork, you know, and uh, uh, these things were all bought, brought back into line here by this expedient. And so the uh, Gregorian reform was meant to bring the calendar more into line, more perfectly into sync with the actual sun time. Um, this obviously requires adjustment on our part. The sun does not adjust to us, so we must adjust to it. To it you know? 
But you can see how if, um, if there was an extra day or two in the year that kept recurring and recurring and recurring, and let's say every, uh, every year would give you an extra quarter day, and that was not accounted for. Every four years you'd have an extra day show up that wasn't there before, and it was not accounted for in your calendar. Well, in the course of a, uh, in the course of a year, or a course of a century, that's 25 days, right? If you didn't account for that, suddenly the calendar would be off in a, in a century by 25 days. You know, you can understand this, yeah. right? So whether it's a quarter of a day that they're not accounting for, or even a matter of minutes, over time it's going to add up, and there's going to be a shift between the calendar and the actual solar day, and this is what this was meant to address. By the way, when uh, Pope Gregory XIII introduced the Gregorian calendar, as it's called, in 1582, the Catholic world adopted it, but the Protestant world did not, which made it very interesting. And the, uh, the Orthodox world did not, in the sense that the schismatic Orthodox did not. So in the East, they did not accept it at first. So uh, even, even to the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, the, the, rev the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia is to this day often referred to as the October Revolution. But it actually took place in the Gregorian calendar on November 4th, I believe. So it was not October any longer uh, in this part of the world, even though... Uh, the schismatic Orthodox in Russia were still uh, still using the old Julian calendar, which put it on a different date. So this created problems too. Now these two different calendars calendars were operating side by side, pretty much. But now uh, virtually everybody, I understand, really has adopted the uh, the Gregorian calendar of Pope Gregory the Thirteenth. <clears throat> I mean, reality has a way of imposing itself, you know. And uh, I think this is one of those one of those cases where everybody had to eventually succumb to reality. But this viewer says that she's heard talk about uh, some kind of reversion to the Julian calendar. Have you heard anything about that? Uh, no, and I don't know who she's is talking about this, but maybe she's talking to Greek Orthodox or uh, Russian Orthodox. I have no idea. He's talking about reverting to the Julian calendar. If they want to do that, though, they, they, they're going to have to start finding all that, you know. <laughs> they're going to have to leap in one direction or another as far as yeah. finding days to tuck in there. But I can't imagine why anybody would because, uh, again, uh, the necessity was a real necessity to adjust the calendar to meet the sun. I'll tell you this, though, Tom. <clears throat> I guess it wouldn't really surprise me. Because we see what's going on in this country, what's going on in the world now, and it seems that we're, we, we are insisting that reality adjust itself to our program, right? Uh, the, uh, the Democrats are insisting that everything has to adjust to their agenda, all reality. And if you, if you actually try to represent reality to them, they, they will basically ban you. Okay, you will be uh, eliminated from YouTube if you speak the truth, if you talk reality. So everybody has to talk fables. Remember what St. Paul said? They will pile up 
teachers to themselves having itching ears, and they will turn their minds from, from the truth to fables. Well, we are seeing that royally in the uh, democratically controlled nation here right now, as they have this enormous democratic uh, fable going on, and anybody who dares to speak the truth uh, <clears throat> is immediately annihilated from social media or, or even society, right? If you try to speak reality to them. So for them to say, well, let's go back to the Julian calendar, it makes perfect sense. Because we're going to defy reality. And anybody who dares uh, confront us with reality is going to be run over by lies. I mean, you know, what is a fable that you knowingly propagate but a lie, right? Yeah. And that's, that's the, the order of the day today, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Father, we are almost out of time. I uh, wanted to ask uh, if you could uh, just briefly offer a few reflections on the public rosary that we held uh, today at the Hamilton County Courthouse in um, downtown Cincinnati. I um, think we counted well over 100 souls were there uh, to pray this public rosary on the steps of the courthouse. Um, we've been doing these for, uh, I think, close to a year, perhaps over a year now, Father. Um, why are these rosaries so important? Why do we do this? Why do we try and do this every month? Well, Tom, I think the number was actually closer to 200. Really? Okay. Yeah. 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 Now, maybe it's these glasses. I don't know. But, <laughs> you might be right. But certainly seem to be, uh, I would say there were at least 200 people there, yeah. in fact. Yeah. But um, well, we, we pray these public rosaries, even on the, the courthouse steps, the Hamilton County Courthouse, uh, because we have an obligation to represent our faith and to... Um, if we, if we still have these rights in America to publicly profess our faith, then God help us if we don't use them, if we don't avail ourselves of them. If we were forbidden to publicly present our faith, um, represent our faith, we would risk our lives in order to do that, I think. you know. Well, how much the more so now that we can go down to the courthouse and we can pray the rosary, and uh, be heard for blocks as we're praying the rosary, actually, and publicly profess our faith, we have an obligation to do so. A very serious obligation before God, before the Church, before our families, and so on, all those we can uh, give influence to, and the necessity of being stalwart in our faith. Um, our Lord says, If anyone is ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of him before the angels of heaven. And I'm afraid it is that kind of uh, shame that keeps people from professing their faith. This is one excellent way to confront that, that weakness, to say, no, we are going to go and we're going to profess our faith and our hope and our love for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to call him our king, and we're going to let people know that uh, only by their uh, faith and hope and, and allegiance to him can they hope that any human society We'll have a secure foundation in justice or uh, any hope of peace. All other efforts are doomed to failure. We have to profess that faith in Christ the King. And how, how better, what better way to do it than that? Uh, recount the, the mysteries of our Lord's life, death, and resurrection, his triumph. Uh, the triumph of our Lord in our Blessed Mother and her her glorification in heaven as the queen of angels and saints. Um, that's how the, the rosary, you know, is consummated. 
Um, this is our faith, and uh, we have an obligation to, uh, to stand up and say so. The Nazis tried to uh, bottle up the faith in the sacristies of Germany. They would, they would allow the Catholics to practice their faith as long as they did so behind closed doors. But they wouldn't allow any manifestations of faith, right? The only faith that was allowed in Nazi Germany was National Socialism, was the Das Volk, right? The Reich. The Reich was a religion unto itself, right? And it was very occult religion, right? They, they dealt with uh, uh, all kinds of occult practices, and there's, there are many... Uh, there's much research going on now exposing uh, all of the occult going on between, behind National Socialism of Hitler. Uh, when I say the occult, I mean actual, like the occult, the witchcraft and demonology and so on. And you'll find the same thing, uh, basically, um, at the root of every totalitarian socialist movement, because they have to create a religion. They have to make a religion out of it somehow. <laughs> And uh, in order to do that, they have to turn to the occult, superstition, and, uh, you know, errant, errant belief, dark, dark forces have to be working with them. That's, those are the ones they have to conjure up in order to give them any power at all. This is what enables them to mesmerize the minds of weak men, or I should say the weak minds of men, <laughs> right? Um, so, um, the, um, the one true faith has to speak up. It has to speak up, and we have to speak this, this faith to power. Powers of the world, powers of hell, we have to confront with the true faith. So I thank the men and the women and the children who uh, came today. I thank all of those who have come over the months past. We intend to as far as possible, uh, regroup there every um, after, uh, the afternoon of every first Sunday of the month. Um, we have occasionally been required by force of events there to move it to another Sunday, but we do not like to have a month go by without having that public rosary on a Sunday afternoon. And we've had a, a lot of support. I'd like what we're doing there to be better publicized. Yes. And I'd like us to be able to send people a notification of the fact what we're doing so that in their homes, even if they're far away and are not able to come to Immaculate Conception, they can join us in that rosary. It might even be a good idea, if at all possible, to live stream the rosary at some point so people can join us wherever they are, not only throughout the country, but throughout the world. Okay. Is it possible? I think so. <clears throat> okay, well... <laughs> Some, someone has the capability of doing that. I'd certainly recommend that we do that now, too. Yes. What does Our Lady say? She says that uh, the tragedies unfolding now are the result of sin, a lack of repentance, right? A lack of reparation for sin, and a lack of dedication to our Immaculate Heart and praying the Rosary. And uh, we, we are trying to be faithful to... The message of our Blessed Mother uh, at Fatima, message sent to us by God himself through his Blessed Mother and our Blessed Mother to tell us what we have to do 
to resist um, the evils of communism, socialism, left, the, le the left totalitarianism. And, um, and so the rosary is that, that potent weapon. We're going to continue to use it and we're going to continue to spread it. And Father, perhaps it's probably also good to mention that we have the, uh, the annual pro-life rosary procession coming up mm -hmm. uh, in, in January, just about a month away mm -hmm. from now, um, where I, we've been doing that for, I think, 30 plus years now, mm -hmm. um, where that's been going on. And so I think we could, um, we could invite all of our viewers to attend. Absolutely. Attend yeah. That, that is specifically to uh, confront the evil of abortion, mm -hmm. certainly a hellish evil. Yes. So year after year after year going on, going on 40 years now. It's got to be, right? 35, 40 years. Uh, we've had the uh, come rain or shine, and it's mostly been snow, actually snow and ice, uh, in late January. But the Saturday, generally before January 2nd, 22nd, is when we've had the pro-life rosary procession. An enormous amount of work goes into that. We'd have, we'd have upwards up to 11, 1,200 people at one time or another coming on that. And uh, so, I, yes, we should propagate that, too, and try to include as many people as we can in that. Okay. Father, anything else you'd like to add before we close? I would. I, I'd like to thank uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Robert Meyer, uh, Robert and Allison Meyer, for sharing uh, their delightful modernism, the synthesis of all heresies, cups for this. I actually re just received a shipment of 10 of them, uh, and much, I'm very grateful to them for that. Uh, every traditional Catholic should have this uh, in the cupboard, I think. I guess they have an Etsy, uh, an Etsy shop, is that right? And make this available. And I think they have other various other uh, Catholic, uh, traditional Catholic wear available too. But, um, you know, Pope Leo XIII was a great devoted, a very devoted coffee. I think he even wrote an, uh, wrote an ode to coffee, right? Pope Leo XIII, a bit of a poet in his own right, in Latin. Um, a Latin ode to coffee. Now, there you are. <laughs> Truly Catholic. But also, um, now we can uh, honor Pope Leo XIII and Pope St. Pius X by uh, our own modernism, the synthesis of all heresies cup. Um, and uh, I'd like to see us uh, develop more on that, on that theme, too. So, uh, in, in any case, uh, Robert... Allison, thank you very much for your kind of you. Yes. Keep up the good work. Yep. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate all that you do. Certainly welcome, Tom. And I ask our viewers to please pray for those who are ill, pray for the deceased, and pray for our country, which means we have to pray for the conversion of our enemies. We might be tempted to want to see um, vengeance on those who are doing so many evil things, the greatest revenge is their conversion, where they themselves acknowledge that they were wrong and they plead to God for forgiveness. Because God wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and lived. And so, uh, West St. Paul says, if you perform an act of charity, and what could be a greater act of charity than actually sincerely praying for the conversion and for the salvation of those who are the enemies of God now, and the enemies of Christ, the enemies of our faith, the enemies of the church, and we see what a great triumph it would be for our Lord to actually convert them <clears throat> and bring them to love what they now hate and detest, to lead them to embrace and foster what they now are trying to destroy. Uh, that would be a great triumph of grace, wouldn't it? 
something worth praying for. And it would be the most thorough victory, too. The most thorough victory to convert the enemies. And so this is what our Lord wants us to do. St. Paul actually says that in doing that, we're actually heaping coals of fire on their heads. Now that sounds pretty vindictive. <laughs> to heap coals of fire on the heads of your enemy. But if you're talking about divine grace and you're talking about the Holy Ghost, the working of the Holy Ghost, those coals of fire can be uh, well, the best form of vengeance of all. That God really does triumph even in those souls who are the most reprobate right now. Can we pray for that? Yes, we can. Must we? Yes. Why? Because that's what the church does. At the end of the low mass, when she prays for the conversion of sinners, she's praying for that. But she's teaching us to pray for that. <clears throat> These are the prayers for the conversion of Russia. The church has us praying for the conversion of sinners, right? That they be turned from hell and turned to God. And our Lord gives us that example from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So in doing that, what we're doing is following the example that Christ our Lord himself has given to us. There's great power in that. So, with that, Tom, I relinquish the floor to you. <laughs> Thank you, Father, and thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Do Catholics Believe? Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.